Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night. I'd be bored of tears if I had to listen to myself that long. <laughs> this last section on Romans is the first section on application in this letter. And Paul is going to get into some very specific application to begin with. And here's basically what we've got. Paul has been speaking about the mercies of God through the first 11 chapters and about how we have been saved by His grace. In the first three chapters, he spoke about how sinful all of us are. Chapters 4 and 5, he speaks especially about justification or the front end of salvation. Chapters 6, 7, and 8, about sanctification or salvation in progress in our lives now. And then chapters 9 through 11, he spoke about the sovereignty of God, especially over Israel. And then in this section, he's going to uh, begin a new part of Romans. The first 11 chapters, we might call the indicatives of the faith. And chapters 12 through 16 deal with the imperatives of the faith. There's a, a way to look at this, if you will that in the first 11 chapters, we have exactly 13 imperatives in Greek. So that's little more than one imperative. An imperative is the verb form that would be used for commands in particular. In chapter 12, that's in the first 11 chapters, a grand total of 13 imperatives. In chapter 12 alone, there are 11 imperatives. So we have as many imperatives in this one chapter, almost, as we do in the first 11. And then in uh, chapters 12 through the end of the book, we have 50 imperatives. So Paul moves from basically statements about what our faith is through the first 11 chapters, and then what we're supposed to do about it in the remaining six or seven, five, five chapters. That's what it is. Don't, don't ask me about math. That's why I'm teaching Greek. Uh, so um, this is a, a pattern that Paul likes to, to do. In Ephesians, he does the same thing. The first three chapters are on the indicatives of the faith. The last three chapters are on uh, the imperatives, what we should do with our faith. And Paul begins in chapter 12, verse 1, with this word, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, he, he uses the word therefore, which really reaches back through the, for the first 11 chapters. And so what he's saying is, I'm urging you on the basis of the mercies of God. What he's saying is, I urge you on the basis of everything I just taught you in the first 11 chapters. And then he goes on and he says, and I urge you to present your bodies as a sacrifice. This word present is actually, it, it comes from uh, the temple uh, service. It's the word that is used to actually present dead sacrifices, animals that are supposed to be slain on, on the altar. And Paul juxtaposes a couple of very startling pictures. He says, present your bodies as a sacrifice. And you go, wait a minute, Paul. You're telling me that in the Old Testament we sacrificed animals, and now I'm supposed to sacrifice myself, my very body? And then he goes on and says, and present your body alive to God, holy and pleasing to him. It's a startling picture that this 
the, the original readers, and we should be kind of shocked at. And yet what Paul says is, at the end, which is your reasonable service? This is what would be expected of you in light of what you've learned about how much God has done for you. It's very similar to what the Lord says when he says, take up your cross and follow me. The cross is a symbol of death. In other words, as Christians, we need to live life in light of our Lord's cross and in light of our own, that we need to live our lives in a way that is truly sacrificial. Uh, You all have heard, I'm sure, of... um, uh, Now I can't remember his name. Uh, J. Vernon McGee. You've heard of J. Vernon McGee. I I should know that name. He was a Dallas Seminary alum. He uh, was my parents' pastor before he uh, was pastor of the Church of the Open Door in in, uh, Southern California. And uh, when he was uh, their pastor, it was a a much smaller congregation. And my folks, when they were 17 and 18 years old, ran off to the desert to take some pictures in Nevada, and they took pictures of the little wedding chapel that they got married at and uh, never told anybody. They eloped, in other words. And they uh, did some other things that I won't put on, uh, on the audio. Uh, my folks would uh, probably not appreciate it. <laughs> and so they come back to ch- church, and McGee calls them out in the audience the next Sunday, and he said, Beecher and Nada Wallace... You cheated me out of a fee. In other words, I was supposed to be able to do the way. <laughs> McGee loved to smoke cigars. And he lived in the dorms, the only dorms that we had at the seminary at the time, back in the 40s. And he, he just turned the air blue with the cigars that he smoked. And it's because of J. Vernon McGee that Dallas Seminary has a well, we don't really appreciate you smoking anything, kind of a rule. So thanks to him, uh, we, we have that rule. But he, he made a great comment about this passage one time, he, as he did on so many different things, preaching through the Bible every five years. He says, the trouble with most living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. Isn't that the case? That's, that's what Paul is talking about here, is this is a reasonable service that we have to live for God. Well, he goes on, and in verse 2, he explains how we should do that, and he says, namely, do not be conformed to this present age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might approve what is the will of God, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. He starts by saying, don't be conformed to this present age. In this present age, he's talking about the cultural values that we have at whatever age we're at. And it reminded me of uh, that New Testament scholar that I uh, quoted from last night about uh, homosexual behavior, where he said the, the New Testament is very, very clear. Homosexual behavior is absolutely condemned, and I'm just going to disagree with it, and, and I appeal to a different authority, which is my own experience and the experience of thousands of others. He was appealing to cultural values. Paul says, do not be conformed to cultural values to this present age, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I want you to notice this. In verse 1, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And how is it that we're supposed to present our bodies? By the renewal of our minds. 
The Christian faith has never been meant to be a faith for dummies, for people who will not use their brains. We ought not to be checking our brains out when we come to church. We need to engage our minds very seriously, very deeply, as we think about what our commitment to Jesus Christ should look like. And so, by renewing our minds, we are actually sacrificing our bodies appropriately. So that you might approve what is the will of God, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. And so, what Paul is, is arguing here in verse 2 is he's, he's basically saying that uh, the conformity to the present age, whatever our culture is, we should not do that instead. We need to be transformed by renewing our mind. We need to live above cultural values so that we can actually test so as to approve what is God's will. We need to have some discernment about what God's will is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. And over the years, I think the best sermons I've, I've ever heard were always those in which the pastor kind of jolted me into thinking about uh, values that I had just kind of gotten sucked into our, our culture, and I had never reflected on how I ought to be thinking about something as a Christian. What Paul is saying here is, let's rise above that. But what he's doing is he's also talking about different, uh, an attitude on how not to conform to the world. And there's three different attitudes that Christians have about conforming to the world. The first attitude is what I would call being reactive or reactionary for the sake of truth. There are lots of Christians who look at our, our culture today, whatever the culture is, and they say, this is evil, everything in it is evil. I'm going to react to it, and I need to judge it and condemn it. The problem with that is two things. First of all, uh, cultures, uh, cultural values are constantly shifting, and what was condemned, say, 50 years ago would be fully acceptable to Christians today at many fronts. A hundred years ago, even more so. My grandparents, when they were dating, uh, both of them were uh, Christians, but my grandmother's parents were very concerned about this young man because they didn't think he was very much of a Christian since he liked going to football games. Football games. That was kind of a cultural taboo in some circles back then. The second problem with being reactive for the sake of truth is that it does not take into account what I would call the communal imago Dei. Imago Dei is the Latin uh, expression for the image of God. And we talked about this uh, uh, earlier, about the image of God, that we are created in God's image, and every single human being, even born today, is still created in God's image. That's why James can say, do not murder somebody because you are murdering somebody who's created in God's image. It wasn't just Adam and Eve that created, were created in God's image, but all of us. And it's not, the, the image of God is, is something that you and I cannot destroy. It is impossible to destroy the image of God unless you actually kill someone. What we can do is distort it. And in fact, all of us have distorted the image of God, the Imago Dei. What that means is that if you see somebody that has a particular attribute, there's a flip side to it. If you say, that's a, a trait, a characteristic I don't appreciate or approve of, well, there's a, a flip side to it that may be of value. Somebody who might be hot-tempered might actually be utilizing 
uh, courage, but in, a, in an inappropriate way. Somebody else who might be uh, uh, very loud uh, might also be courageous. Somebody else who could be passionate could be someone who could show love. The, 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 uh, the Imago Day has been distorted, but it has not been destroyed either by any individual or by culture. And consequently, when I see Christians who say, I'm going to be reactionary for the sake of truth against everything in in culture, then my response is, then you're denying that the Imago Dei is still there in, in its form, even though it's distorted. You're assuming that the Imago Dei has been lost in our community, in our culture. That's never been the case. You can think of the very worst people that you've ever thought of, and the Imago Day is still there. This was a point I was trying to make last night about uh, the gay community, is that they still are exercising the Imago Day. They're still showing it, even if it's distorted at times. And there are things that you and I can learn from homosexuals that we cannot learn from heterosexuals uh, that are, are going to be positive things. So I'll leave it at that, that that's the first reaction that we have. It's to be judgmental, to condemn everything in our cur- culture, the reason we shouldn't do that is both because cultural values shift and what was taboo several decades ago may be appropriate now, and it's because it's a denial of the Imago Day still existing in some form. The second attitude is that we might be swinging the pendulum in the other direction, and we might conform for the sake of the gospel. We even have early church fathers that went in, in different directions like this. Tertullian was one who was reactionary for the sake of, the go- uh, for the sake of truth, and then Justin Martyr, both of these second and early third century church fathers, conformed for the sake of the gospel. What's interesting, however, is that it was Tertullian who abandoned the faith and became a heretic, and Justin Martyr stayed true to the faith till his death. But there are those who conform for the sake of the gospel, and they may conform a little bit too much. Uh, seeker-oriented churches tend to do this. There's, there's seeker-sensitive churches, and there's seeker-oriented churches. Those churches that say Sunday morning is the time to bring in the lost, and Sunday night and any other time we have the doors open, we're going to always be preaching the gospel, but we don't want to be talking about hell and those parts of the gospel. Uh, Maybe they've gone too far in conforming to uh, uh, society for the sake of the gospel. And that's happened in so many denominations in our churches today that um, the gospel is no longer part of what, what their mission is all about. So that's where you're conforming too much, and basically you're denying that the Imago Dei has been distorted. The first one believes the Imago Dei has been lost. The second says it hasn't even been distorted. The third view is to be transformed as we wrestle with uh, our culture and, and think through issues. So here we'd say the Imago Dei is distorted, it's not lost, but our goal is to engage with culture. Paul says in another place, you are not of the world, but you are in the world. And we, we need to engage with the world. We ought not to be monks who try to find a monastery uh, on, on, a, on a mountain that we can be far away from people and just worship God on our own. The way we worship God, as John says, is by loving our brother and sister. That's how we show our love for God. We need to be in the world, but not of it. And a part of that is... discerning what 
what we can glean from the world. A, a, a friend of mine uh, by the name of Larry Crabb is a, a psychologist. We were on faculty together when I taught at Grace Seminary. Yes, I've been at, at Dallas Seminary forever, but even before then I was at another school forever. So I'm very, very old. But uh, I was on faculty with uh, Larry Crabb, and he talked about how he did Christian psychology. He called his view plundering the Egyptians. What he said was, just like with the children of Israel, when they left Egypt, they asked their neighbors for gold and silver uh, items that they could take with them, and the neighbors were saying, if you just leave, we'll give you whatever you want. We just want you to go away because our firstborn son was just killed and we want to get rid of you. And they used those precious metals to build the tabernacle. What Crabb argues is that as we uh, interact with the world, we should not assume that the, what the world says is all bad. There is good in there that has been distorted, and we need to discern it. And sometimes, uh, often quite by accident, but especially because the Imago Dei is still resident in our communities, in our, in our culture, there are good things that the world even stumbles upon, and it's important for us to, to think through that. So Crabb would read all this secular literature on psychology and run it through a filter of a transformed mind and find out what was good in this literature that would help him to be a better, better counselor. So I think you can apply that to any area of life. I, I don't care for the attitude that says we as Christians need to be in our holy huddle and never interact with the world, and never find out what they have to say. It doesn't matter what area you, you, you work in. There are things that we can learn from others. And let me just tell you um, about uh, theological liberalism. I don't want to go on a tangent too much, but basically it used to be that if somebody claimed to be a theological liberal, that meant that methodologically they were liberal. That is, that they would be open to all of the evidence and look at it from all sides and then on that basis decide what they believed. Theological liberalism today is anything but liberal methodologically. It is methodologically as narrow and as bigoted as it possibly can be. In fact, it is so narrow that they come to the conclusion that the Bible does not contain anything of a supernatural value and therefore they import a particular interpretation on the text in light of that presupposition. So I'm working on a book called Chicken Little and the Myth of Theological Liberalism, um, where I'm going to be addressing some of those things. I wrote a blog with that title some years ago about uh, one of my students who had gone to the Society of Biblical Literature, I think I mentioned uh, SBL last night, and uh, was talking to uh, a scholar who was uh, a well-known liberal scholar who had really done some uh, superb work in uh, early texts of the church fathers. And my, my student was doing uh, outstanding work in this area as well. But when the professor found out that he was from Dallas Seminary, uh, after about 20 minutes of conversation, immediately he decided, this guy's an idiot, he's biased, I don't want to have anything to do with him. And so I wrote this blog about this, and I got over 500 comments on this blog. Uh, a lot from liberal scholars who denied that they were really uh, uh, as uh, fundamentalist in their mindset and bigoted as they were. And I said, here's the illustrations. So I think what I want to see us do is to learn to learn from our society the, va the values that it has, but do it in a transformed way where we are able to exercise discernment. 
We should not be condemning of everything in society. We should not be accepting of everything in society, but we should be discerning of everything in society. And from there, we can become better Christians who really do live transformed lives. Lives, not lies, sorry. All right. Um, So to summarize these first two verses, Paul is saying that we must be committed to God with a fully engaged mind that really is also a sacrificial life, a sacrificed body based on the grace of the gospel. And essentially, he is saying that worship must precede service. Notice he hasn't yet told the Christians what they are to do, just to make a commitment of their minds and their bodies to the Lord. And now he gets into the practical section, starting in verse 3 of Romans chapter 12. Commitment must precede ministry. That's a key issue that, in fact, in all the passages that deal with spiritual gifts, it's there. There are four passages that deal with spiritual gifts, and this is one of them, and I'm listing these in a particular order, 53, 56, 60, and 65. What What do those numbers mean? Anybody have an idea? 53 spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, you think? No, somebody knows that's not right. Those are the years that these books were probably written. 1 Corinthians, the whole letter, not just chapter 12, written in about A.D. 53. I may not be good at math, but I do love chronology. Romans 12, in the winter of 56. Ephesians 4, about the year 60. And 1 Peter chapter 4, about 65. Now, what's interesting about this is that as you look at these lists, and I've just given you the chart, we're not going to be reading through the passages, but as you look at the lists, you you notice that as you go from column to column, fewer gifts are checked off. Of the 20 spiritual gifts that are listed here, we have, uh, 1 Corinthians has quite a few of them, 13. Romans, written three years later, lists only six gifts. Ephesians lists four gifts, but part of the problem here is we're looking at um, teaching and pastoring. Is it one gift or is it two? So it's four, is it five? There's, there's some issues there. And then First Peter 4 lists just two gifts, speaking and serving. There are some who would like to say that as we go through the list, uh, the, these, these gifts chronologically, it's a shrinking list of gifts. And consequently, because it's a shrinking list of gifts, their conclusion is that no spiritual gifts exist today. I've talked to some people that, that hold to that view. But when you look at the lists, you can't possibly uh, make it mean that. And the reason is because there's not a single gift that is found in all four lists. It's not that it's a shrinking list. When you get to Romans, now you've got some new gifts that are not found in 1 Corinthians. Same with Ephesians, same with 1 Peter. So if it's shrinking, why do we have new gifts added at each list? Well, that raises some interesting questions, but the more you study those passages, you you learn some fascinating things about the spiritual gifts. So let me talk to you about some myths about the gifts, and if we have time, I don't know what time we're supposed to quit. What, What... I, I haven't even watched the clock before, so maybe I won't follow it again tonight. But uh, what time is, am I supposed to be done? Whenever you, oh, you guys are so vague. Okay. Well, I haven't had dinner yet, so how about right now? <laughs> okay. 
if we have time, we'll have time for Q&A, and, and I'll ask you, Bob, if that's okay. Uh, first of all, here's myth number one. Knowledge of one's gift is necessary to exercise it. There's no place in the New Testament that says you have to know what your spiritual gift or gifts are in order to exercise them. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, says that we should know about spiritual gifts, but he's not talking about each one of us needing to know them in order to exercise them. Secondly, and I think this is a very important point, are these four lists, are they exhaustive? My response to that would be, no, they are not exhaustive lists. If they were exhaustive lists, then um, you'd expect to see the same list each time. But it's a, it's a changing lift. No one in the first century would have had access to all four of these books, not until the very end of that first century. These churches, even Paul's churches, would have maybe just the letter to the Romans, and then maybe they'd get Corinthians, and uh, perhaps some churches would also get Ephesians as people travel around and pass these copies of the New Testament that they had various individual letters. But if these lists are not exhaustive, then what are they? I take it that they're suggestive, and consequently, uh, there may be, in fact, I'm quite confident that there are other gifts that are not listed in these lists. I'll even suggest some to you tonight, all of them heretical, of course. But since it's not in there, we can say whatever we want. Now, I'll, I'll give you some suggestions. Secondly, second myth, knowledge of, of the, the spiritual gifts is complete. So the first point is knowledge of one's spiritual gift. Your own spiritual gift is necessary to exercise it. And I'd say, no, I don't think so. I think there's something else that is necessary if we're going to exercise our spiritual gifts. Secondly, knowledge of the spiritual gifts is complete, exact, and accurate. And again, I'd say, I don't think so. It's not an exhaustive list. And then you have... Uh, knowledge of the individual spiritual gifts here. Is, is it complete? Do we understand exactly what's going on? Back in the 70s and even into the 80s and 90s, uh, there were churches that would do gift profiling. They would uh, have these kind of laundry list um, uh, questionnaires that people would fill out to find out what spiritual gifts they had. And this was all the rage, uh, especially in uh, California, uh, where people would try to find out what their spiritual gifts were. And they do go through this questionnaire, it might be 500 questions, 100 questions, whatever it was, to determine what their spiritual gifts were. And then they get done with that and say, oh, I've got this gift. That's what I should be doing. The problem with those gift profiles is that the people that put them together didn't know more about the spiritual gifts than we see in the New Testament. And it's not exactly clear what these gifts what all of them mean. Let me give you an example. I'll give you two examples. The gift of giving. Well, Paul says it's the gift of giving. Okay, so that presupposes that somebody knows how to give money. Does it mean that that person is necessarily wealthy? It may mean that's somebody who knows how to accumulate wealth and then generously gives it to the Lord's work. Or it may mean somebody who is discerning in administering money that is coming in and knowing how to distribute it properly. I don't know if it's either one of those. It has something to do with finances, that much we do know. But I don't know if it's one of those two things, both of those, or maybe a third thing. The gift of teaching. Is that somebody who is primarily driven 
by communication skills to see that what he or she teaches is something that people can understand? Or is that person driven by a thirst for knowledge, a thirst for truth, driven perhaps by a desire to do research? And, and you could go right down these, these gifts. Some of them we know quite a bit more about. Prophecy, apostles, tongues. Uh, those gifts, there's an extensive treatment on them, and we can define those pretty carefully. But many of the rest of them we really can't. So I think one of the problems that we've had in our churches is that there's the assumption that we know exactly what the spiritual gifts are, and it's really based on nothing more than just a cultural experience about how the gifts have uh, appeared to function in our churches. So here again, we're, the irony is, right after Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, don't be conformed to cultural values, including Christian cultural values, which may be sub-biblical. And now he talks about spiritual gifts. you got some people that go back and they, they conform to sub-biblical Christian values. So part of what I'm saying tonight is, do you have to know what your own spiritual gift is to use it? No. Do we know exactly what the spiritual gifts are? Not in every case. So by the time you get all done, I'm going to deconstruct whatever you thought you knew, and you're going to come out saying, I don't know even what he was talking about. So that's, that's where I like to leave my students at all times. Point three, or myth number three, the purpose of the lists is to give us an exhaustive table of spiritual gifts. We've kind of discussed this already, and you can see the table. That is the one that's in your printed notes. And there's not a single gift in all four lists. No one in the first century had all of them. And it's likely that many of these gifts that we actually have today and had back then were never mentioned because it's not an exhaustive list. So let me, um, let me see if this is where I... Uh, yeah, this is where I want to, want to discuss this. I'm going to list some spiritual gifts that I think we have today that may not have existed back then. And by the way, here's some other questions we have about the spiritual gifts before I get into this because it's kind of a necessary preface. And that is, let's say you have a particular gift. Let's say you have the gift of teaching. Is this a natural aptitude that you had before you were a Christian that God has, is now enhancing for his glory? Or is it a brand new thing that you never had anything like that before? In some cases, I think it may be brand new. I can tell you that um, when I made a radical commitment to Jesus Christ when I was 16, uh, my life changed in some pretty dramatic ways. I was already a Christian. I, I put my faith in Christ by the time I was four years old. My brother led me to Christ. We went to vacation Bible school. Thank God for VBS. And uh, I was four years old. He was five and a half. And we came home, and the teacher was talking to preschoolers about hell. Can you imagine that? Boy, we'd get sued for that today. And uh, I came home and said, Wally, I, I don't want to go to that place. Well, what you got to do is believe in Jesus. Okay, whatever it takes, I'm getting out of there. So, <laughs> so it was fire insurance for me. But I think I was a genuine believer at age four. When I was 16... I made a very radical commitment, and at that point I, I, I basically rededicated my life to Christ, but I said, from this point on in my life, I'm going to prepare for full-time Christian vocational service. I don't want to do anything else. That's how I want to serve the Lord. And uh, up until that time, I was 
about the shyest person you'd ever want to meet. To speak in front of a crowd of more than two or three people, forget it. There's no way I could do it. And uh, the Lord has been awfully gracious to me. And even after that, as I told you all last night in uh, one of my debates with Bart Ehrman, I was petrified going into it. But the Lord still is able to grant us his uh, spirit's uh, conviction and power and ability to do things that we don't have naturally of our own. So whether I have the gift of teaching or not, I don't know. I don't even know what it is exactly. Uh, But I do know that I'm a little bit more courageous than I used to be, and that's all of God's doing. It has nothing to do with me. Even though, to my folks' very great regret, they named me Daniel, hoping I'd be a really courageous young man, but uh, not until the Lord really got a hold of my life. So there's many gifts, I think, that are not mentioned here, There may be the gift of courage. Think about that in our society today, where we need to have people who are courageous and can speak out uh, in various contexts for the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which is, uh, for anybody to say that, that was like a massive understatement on his part. Uh, The gift of not being embarrassed. (laughs) That should be something all of us should have. I think there may be the gift of technology. Using technology for the glory of God. Every place I go to speak, if someone doesn't have the gift of technology at that church, the whole thing's over. So I want to thank uh, those of you who helped set this whole thing up tonight and this this weekend so that I could speak and uh, you could actually hear me. Uh, My sister, we used to joke about her. We we said uh, growing up, she has the gift of messy. Um, I don't think that's really a spiritual gift. And my folks joked about me that I had the gift of hungry. Um, I don't think that's a spiritual gift either. But uh, the question is, is it something that you have as a natural ability or is it something given to you later? I think in terms of any kind of boldness I've had for the gospel or speaking ability, that was not at all a natural ability. The Lord had to bestow that on me later. Uh, And... uh, there's so many of these gifts that we just don't exactly uh, understand what they are. But here's the point. If the Lord has burdened on your heart something to do for the church, maybe there's a gift of creativity, I suspect. You notice there's not a single gift that speaks about music or singing? That may well be a spiritual gift. I think the fact is that you can use your talents or New talents, aptitudes that, the, uh, that have been developed, enhanced for the Lord, or new things that all of a sudden after you became a Christian, now you've got a new passion and a new desire for something that you didn't have before. Nurture those things. In other words, learn how to say yes to the way God has designed you so that you can be in service uh, to others. That's, I think, one of the exciting things about these spiritual gifts. And that's why I don't think we necessarily need to know what all of them are. Myth number four, at least this is what I take as a myth, and not everybody does, is that all of the gifts are still fully functioning. I'm going to leave that to the next section for us to discuss, and maybe we'll have a Q&A time after that. Okay, so now let me address some realities and principles about the spiritual gifts. Reality or principle number one is each Christian has at least one spiritual gift. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 speaks about exercising the gift that each one of us has. Ephesians 4.7 speaks about 
the gift. In other words, at the point of salvation, each one of us has been given a spiritual gift, at least one. Lewis Berry Chafer, who was the first president of Dallas Seminary, wrote an eight-volume systematic theology. And in that volume, he spoke about 33 things that happen at the moment of salvation. I have a suspicion that many of those things are simply different metaphors to speak of the same event. But a lot of them are quite different. For example, we are justified at the moment of salvation. We are sanctified in terms of initial sanctification at the moment of uh, conversion. The Holy Spirit comes to uh, dwell within us. The Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. We are each given a spiritual gift. You know, the, 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 the list goes on, but I think it's an important thing for us to recognize. There are no, there's absolutely zero evidence in the New Testament that there were any Christians who did not have a spiritual gift. Each one of us has one. Now, a question to ask, though, is can you get a second gift after conversion? And here's where the evidence gets a little bit trickier. We have at least two passages that do, in fact, say that. At least I think they do. First Timothy 4.14 and Second Peter, or Second Timothy 1.6. Both of them are talking about when the elders laid hands on you, Timothy, and you received a spiritual gift. And when I laid hands on you, Timothy, Paul says in Second Timothy 1.6, and you received a spiritual gift. It would be very strange for us to think when the elders laid hands on him, this must be at the time that he was saved. Uh, apparently, Timothy knew the Lord sometime before he met elders. So it looks like he received a spiritual gift after the point of salvation. In Romans chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, I am eager to impart uh, spiritual gifts to you also who are in Rome. Well, does he really mean that he is going to be laying hands on people and imparting spiritual gifts? That's possible. Or he may be saying, I'm eager to see the results of my exercise of spiritual gifts in your midst. It, it's a difficult verse to uh, understand. But the, the, here's the point, is that at least in the New Testament era, gifts could be added uh, after uh, uh, conversion. And from my own experience, as, as uh, minimal as it counts towards any kind of a normative understanding, I would say that happened in my life too. So, each Christian has at least one gift, which means, therefore, you get it at salvation. And I think that uh, you can get at least a second one later on. Many Christians are given more than one gift. Secondly, for the church to function as it should, each person must be committed to the Lord. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, come before Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. We must be committed to the Lord before uh, we really can function on all cylinders. Howard Hendricks likes to, or he liked to use the illustration of a football game where he says, uh, most churches function like a college football game. You've got 50,000 fans in the stadium who are desperately in need of exercise and 22 people on the field who are desperately in need of rest. Church is not a spectator sport. If a church is going to function on, on all of its cylinders, all of us need to be involved. And that's why I want to encourage you to think about what's your niche. Some of you are strong right-brainers, as I learned today at lunch, and you have some incredible creative juices flowing. Find out what you can do and find out if it's going to be useful for the body of Christ. It's amazing when 
when Christians are basically unleashed to, to help the, the body grow in some very creative ways that the leadership either hasn't thought about or hasn't had time to invest in. But uh, if, if you're free to really wrestle with these things, it's, it's, it's incredible the kind of ministry we can have. All right, so those are the first two realities I wanted to mention. The third reality is you don't need to know what your gift is to use it, as we've already said, but you do need to be devoted to the Lord. So I'm underscoring that point one more time, that uh, Romans 12, 1 through 2, precedes Romans 12, 3 through 8. And if you look at the other passages, 1 Peter 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, there is this strong sense of a commitment to Jesus Christ must precede the exercise of these gifts. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, you have Paul getting into the applicational section of his letter. Immediately before that, 4, 1 through 3, is, is applying the first three chapters. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, you notice that 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are dealing with spiritual gifts. And this time, wedged right between those two chapters on spiritual gifts, Paul says, I show you a better way, which is love. Love must take priority over the exercise of spiritual gifts. Commitment to Jesus Christ must take a priority over the exercise of spiritual gifts. Now, I can apply this in another way as well. And that is, what about thinking about celebrity conversions? I actually got online today and I googled um, uh, movie stars who have had a conversion experience. I won't mention names. You can do that. Don't do it now. Get off that iPhone and just listen. So, um, unless you have the gift of iPhone, maybe I guess you could do that. <laughs> anyway, so many of them have had a conversion experience, and Christians get all excited when they hear that Jane Fonda became a believer and all sorts of, uh, sorts of other people. And what happens, I think, within the evangelical community is uh, we, we have uh, a very uh, low self-image, apparently, because we have an identity crisis. We feel as if, oh, we need movie stars and celebrities to become Christians uh, to, to kind of validate us as important people. Well, the Lord already regards us as important. We don't need to have that kind of a thing for, for us to do that. And so what, what then happens is and here's how it plays out. This is very, very dangerous. We get those people to go on a speaking tour about the gospel and, and their conversion experience. And they've never had a chance to mature. And so they're actually exercising their talents, if you will, not necessarily spiritual gifts, but they're exercising their talents as, as celebrities of some sort for the sake of the gospel. And a lot of times, way too often, they burn out and then they deny the Lord later. I want to give you a contrast to that of a very well-known Christian who now has, has passed off the scene, Chuck Colson. He was in Richard Nixon's White House and in his administration, and he became a Christian before the whole Watergate scandal broke wide open, but kind of in the midst of it. And he decided, you know, I could, I could fight this going to prison, or I could say this is discipline from the Lord that I need to do, and I'm going to accept uh, this discipline. And, and he decided, I'm going to go to prison. Now, he could have fought it, 
and probably had a reduced sentence or even gotten a, a free pass. But he chose to take the hard route. And part of the reason he did is he, he felt that he was not mature. He was a brand-new Christian. He needed some time to figure out what, what the Christian faith was all about. I have so much respect for Colson and how, how much he had this attitude of, first, I must be committed to the Lord before I ever open my mouth. And that's, that's a great attitude to have. And he is extremely uh, rare, in a class by himself almost. So many Christian celebrities of sorts, whether they're... Um, positive or negative celebrities have, I think, succumbed to what the Christian community does to them. Oh, you are now our spokesman when they don't have any, any maturity yet. All right, so you don't need to know what your gift is to use it, but you do need to be devoted to the Lord. And if you're not devoted to the Lord, I can guarantee you this, that you may be using your spiritual gift, but if you do, you're also going to be distorting it. You're not going to be using it as appropriately as you could. Fourth, one value of the gift list, these four gift lists, is to let us know how to say no. It's a great value. Some of you are people pleasers, and you always want to say yes to everything. Children of alcoholics especially are like that. But others are just naturally people pleasers. They, they just, I'm, I'm happy to help. And you end up getting burned out because of how much service you do. Well, one value of the gift list is for you to say, I'm good at X, but I am not good at Y. Don't ask me to do Y. That's not where, where I'm, I'm really helpful. Now, there is a sense in which all of us need to be servants, and we need to pitch in as much as we can uh, just for the sake of the body of Christ, whether we have giftedness in that area or not. So it was probably wrong of me to intentionally break dishes when I was newlywed so that my wife would not ever ask me to do dishes again. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, even though it's not my favorite thing. I'm probably confessing too many things here. All right, let's move on to number five. Are all the gifts still with us today? My answer to that is no, and this is a, a disputed area. I may be wrong. This is not the most important thing for Christians to be discussing. The, sense, uh, the essence of the Christian faith is not related to spiritual gifts. But it is an area that I think we do need to get some clarity on. And I can tell you that I have a great relationship with those who are charismatic and Pentecostal. I have spoken at their churches. We minister together. And uh, I've co-authored a book and co-edited a book called Who's Afraid of the Holy Spirit? And we intentionally had two different forewords written, one by a cessationist, that's somebody who believes that the gifts, the sign gifts have ceased, and another by a charismatic or a non-cessationist. It's, it's unique to have a book have two forwards. But the, the book, Who's Afraid of the Holy Spirit, with uh, about a dozen different authors, the basic thesis of this is we wanted to explore if the Holy Spirit did not die in the first century, then what in the world is he doing today? And we were addressing cessationist churches, churches that believe that the gifts of tongues and miracles, and healings, and uh, prophecy, those gifts have died. Well, if they died, did the Holy Spirit also die? And way too many cessationist churches function as if that's the case. So those of us who contributed to this book, we had J.I. Packer write a chapter on discovering the will of God, and some others that did some other really exciting chapters, I think. 
uh, we were asking the question, okay, the Holy Spirit didn't die, but what is he doing today? What is his role? And let's explore this as cessationists. So it was kind of a way to open up a new way for us to be thinking about the Holy Spirit, even though we were not charismatic. And we had Josh McDowell, who wrote one of the forewords as another cessationist, and Wayne Grudem, who's a professor now in Phoenix. He was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, for many years, uh, right, the other forward. Uh, both of them are, are good friends of mine, and they both had a different perspective, but they, I think both see the value in this book. Well, are all the gifts still with us today? I'm going to give you my basic arguments as to why I think they are not. First of all, deals with the purpose of what I would call the sign gifts. And I would say the purpose of the sign gifts was essentially to uh, validate the gospel. It was not to show what is normative Christianity. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 says this, Your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Well, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, is no longer with us in the flesh. And he's the cornerstone of this building where the apostles and prophets are also a part of that foundation. I take it that what Paul is saying is that the church is built on the teaching of the apostles and prophets, and since they are no longer with us, they uh, constitute part of that foundation, but they are not part of the building. This is a way for Paul to say, once that foundation is laid and the building is built, when those apostles and prophets die off, then so will these various gifts. But I think we'll, we'll, we'll look at some of this, and I've given you, uh, I think, a handout called uh, Continuity versus, versus Discontinuity that kind of gets into all of these issues a little bit more. Okay, second argument is that um, is this. Why doesn't the New Testament say that the sign gifts have disappeared? This is probably the number one argument I get from people who think that uh, all of the gifts are fully functioning today. My response is, how in the world could it? The New Testament was written by people who had the gift of prophecy and written by apostles. How could they say, oh, by the way, this gift has died? Well, if it's died, I'm not going to listen to it anymore then. What we would have to have is a book written by somebody who was in the circle of an apostle who is no longer, uh, after that apostle has died, and that person is writing to uh, believers that were associated with that person. We actually do have one book that fits that, and that's the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews, unknown, was certainly in Paul's circle. So many people for many, many centuries have felt that Paul was the author, uh, because it's so similar to Paul's theology, but it's not at all the way Paul writes. It's not the logical structure. It's not the Greek. But the author of Hebrews does mention uh, an associate of Paul's, Timothy, in chapter 13. And he says that, he says that uh, Timothy is uh, getting out of prison and he's coming from Italy. Uh, I take it that Hebrews was written in about A.D. 66, two years after Paul had died. And that, the, that, that Timothy actually was in prison because when Paul in 2 Timothy, his last letter, wrote to Timothy, he said, if possible, come before winter, bring my, my cloak with me and bring the, the parchments, his manuscripts that he had, I think, of the Old Testament. And he said, and stay away from Alexander the coppersmith. He's, he's done me much harm. 
uh, when you go to Troas. That's where I've got my cloak and my parchment. And, and why would Paul have left his clothes and his books in Troas? Well, I take it that Alexander the coppersmith had actually been the one who turned Paul in to the police and got him arrested so that Paul would later uh, get beheaded by Nero. And when, Paul, when Timothy went to Troas, he was not able to evade Alexander. Alexander laid a trap for him, and Timothy went to prison. Now, we know in Roman law that they, they had uh, the right to a speedy trial. And if you've been in prison for two years and your accusers don't have a case against you, then you got to get set free. If Paul died in 64, then Timothy is getting freed. I put all that together. And it's, it, it's, it's more than speculation, but it's certainly less than certainty. Uh, I'll, I'll die for some things, I believe. This one, you can have my, the fingernail on my small finger, but um, that's it. But um, I take it that very likely Hebrews was written, therefore, two years after Paul died, to the churches that Paul had kind of ministered to, to the Jewish congregations. But here's what's interesting. So here's somebody who's writing in Paul's circle after Paul had died, and here's what he says in chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How do we know it was a great salvation? Well, it was declared at first by the Lord. That's past tense, of course, when the Lord was on earth. And it was attested to us by those who heard. By us, to us by those who heard. The author to the Hebrews is including himself in this. While God also bore witness past tense, by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The author is putting all of this in the past tense. He's saying that these sign gifts were true. If the author wanted to say, how should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, wanted to tell how great that salvation was, to really underscore the point, he should have said something like, it was declared by the Lord, and it was attested to us and to you by those who heard. And we know even now that God still is bearing witness by these signs and wonders and various miracles. He doesn't put it in the present tense. He's putting all this in the past. And that, to me, looks as if these things have indeed passed. That's a text that, of course, many cessationists would agree with. The sign gifts are no longer. Number five. Well, we've been wrestling with this. Here's the third point about all the gifts still with us. Continuity versus discontinuity. And this is in the, in the paper that I've given you, two theses. To the extent that we see discontinuity between the 1st and 21st century in the use of sign gifts, all of us are cessationists. And I could say that every Christian on the planet, except for those who are really heretical, are cessationists to a degree. Unless you think that God is uh, using prophets today to add to the Bible, then you are a cessationist to some degree. Because we all have to say at least that the New Testament prophets who would prophesy and what their prophecies were now are recorded in Scripture and therefore they are inspired and the, and the Word of God, that kind of thing is not happening anymore. Even my most radical charismatic friends would agree with that. Then I would add, the more discontinuity we see, the more we affirm that the sign gift's purpose was authentication of the gospel rather than a display of normative Christianity. 
So really what we're dealing with here, and this is the remarkable thing, is we're dealing with only four or five disputed spiritual gifts. And yet that has fractured the church for a long, long time. And I think it's helpful for us to, to, to think about this and how we should relate to each other. But I think that we've got some discontinuity in these gifts. For example, let me just uh, uh, illustrate this with the gift of uh, prophecy and the gift of speaking in tongues and the gift of miracles. Prophecy. The New Testament prophets, like the Old Testament prophets, never mixed error with truth. When they prophesied, just like we were told in Deuteronomy chapter 18, that uh, you listen to a prophet if he gives a near prophecy and it comes true. If it doesn't, you not only don't listen to him, but you stone him. That's probably going to temper some folks who want to come up and say, I'm a prophet. You know, you're not going to get too many people that want to try that, that one. Today, I don't know of any charismatic group that says our prophets are always batting a thousand. They always say, well, they mix truth with error. Okay, so how valuable is that prophecy then? And I have, I, I, I'm, I have no problem ministering in charismatic and Pentecostal churches. Uh, I used to be a Pentecostal myself. But um, I'll go to a church and speak, and somebody will pray in tongues over me, and somebody else will come up and uh, prophesy about something. And everybody thinks they have the gift of prophecy. And yet some of these churches have been destroyed by authorities that have... Um, greater weight in those communities. There was a professor who taught at Dallas Seminary who later became charismatic, left the school, and he has left in his wake a number of churches that he has said, I know you were seeking a pastor. So he, goes, he takes a, a pastorate up in Montana. I know you were seeking a pastor here, and uh, uh, the Lord told me that you need to hire me. Well, that kind of cuts off all discussion, doesn't it? And it kind of wrecks all discernment. And after he wrecked that church, he said, the Lord told me I'm going to Kansas. See you guys later. Those kinds of things are not helpful. That's one of the things that is missing in many charismatic groups. I'm happy to say that more and more are, are starting to exercise this, and that's the gift of discernment. In the first century, when these sign gifts were operating, the apostles constantly reminded the readers, we have it in 1 John, we have it in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, exercise discernment when you test the spirits, is what they were saying. So if the prophets today are not batting a thousand, they don't have 100% accurate records, but the prophets of the Bible were, that's discontinuity. That means, in some sense, prophecy is not occurring in the same way today as it was then. Therefore, the gift of prophecy that we see today is not the same thing as what it was in the first century. And maybe it's not the gift of prophecy at all. Or take the gift of speaking in tongues. I think there's very firm evidence that speaking in tongues was always a known human language. Paul makes one comment where it sounds as if we've got an escape valve on that, where he says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. People have looked at that text and said, this is proof that Paul spoke in the tongues of angels, and therefore I speak in the tongues of angels, and therefore you can't understand it because it's not a human language. The problem is Paul never said that he spoke in the tongues of angels. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. And in the next two verses, he gives a couple of other couplets, uh, conditional clauses. If I 
have faith and know all things. Well, he doesn't know all things. He's not omniscient. Uh, If he has faith to remove mountains, well, he didn't have that much faith. In each point, the first thing he says is true. The second thing he says is not yet true. It's hypothetical. Even if I were able to do this, is what he's saying. If that were the case, still, love takes priority. So what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 13.1 is, even if I were able to speak in the tongues of angels, but I do not. So tongues in the New Testament were always known human languages, never known to the person speaking in that tongue, but they were always human languages. And today, people who speak in tongues, uh, very rarely do we hear of that, uh, where they actually are speaking in a, a human language. We've actually tried to uh, uh, test some students at Dallas Seminary that speak in tongues, or we've asked to do that, and one of my colleagues said, okay, if they speak in a known human language, my guess is since the Holy Spirit is prompting this, they wouldn't have an accent, right? But none of the charismatic students has come forward to, to be allowed to be tested. That's not a good, good uh, thing either. It shows that they're, they're not exercising discernment or wanting to see if this is true. Or take the gift of miracles. We have people that claim to be faith healers today, but um, Oral Roberts, who was a huge faith healer in the, in the middle of the 20th century, started his own university in Oklahoma. Several years ago at the Evangelical Theological Society, uh, when I was uh, the president of the Southwestern Regional section of that, I got to choose what the topic uh, was for the conference And I chose conflicting pneumatologies, that is, conflicting views of the role of the Holy Spirit today. And I invited faculty members from Oral Roberts to come and give lectures. And it was actually a a terrific weekend because, you know, you have charismatics on the one side and and cessationists or non-charismatics on the other side. And we almost never talked to each other. This is 20 years ago. I I hope we're doing better now. But um, what we discovered through the weekend is, gee, we agree on almost everything. It's just four or five spiritual gifts we don't agree on, and that's it. So otherwise, we say, you're, you're a lot more orthodox than I thought you were, we said to both sides. But one of the lectures given by an Oral Roberts professor was that uh, he said, you know, Oral Roberts never claimed to have the gift of healing. He had the gift of faith, and he would pray over someone, and many times that person would be healed, but uh, not always. Uh, If he had the gift of faith healing, every time that person should have been healed. And so I raised the question. I said, so if Oral Roberts didn't have the gift of healing, who does? And they said, we don't know anybody who does. That's discontinuity that they admitted themselves. Then you've got the gift of miracles. Who is doing non-healing miracles today? That's a pretty rare thing to find anywhere. So all, all of that is evidence continued evidence of discontinuity between the first century and the 21st century. All right, so I had all this down. I didn't know I had that down. Um, I should add uh, interpretation of tongues. Paul said whenever you speak in the church, uh, if someone speaks in tongues, somebody must interpret what they said. And uh, I think even today in most charismatic churches that rarely happens, although in some I understand it's, it's starting to occur much more frequently. Now, let me uh, get almost to the conclusion on the fourth point about are all the gifts still with us today. 
Now let me stress this, that the significance of the disagreement between believers over these issues is really minor in comparison to the things that really matter. And by way of contrast, if you could think with me about what we talked about last night, there are people who uh, are, are Christians or claim to be Christians who also are actively involved in a homosexual lifestyle. They are uh, promiscuous. They may be even monogamous with somebody of the same sex, but it's homosexual activity. I think I would draw the line and say, that's the kind of a person that I don't think I can really have fellowship with. There there I need to address the sin. But somebody on this side, that's say a charismatic versus a non-charismatic, there should be no reason why we can't get together. These are not the same kinds of issues. You understand that. There are are, are huge differences between uh, those things. And the problem with a lot of uh, believers today is they don't have enough discernment to say, this is a level one doctrine, this is a level two or a level three doctrine. I get my students, uh, my interns, to uh, answer four questions. I think it's four questions. I told you I'm not good at math. But... um, It's the most difficult paper they have to write, and it's a one-page paper. I ask them, question number one, what are the beliefs that you think are essential for the faith? It's essential for the life of the church. If you're going to be saved, you must believe X. Question two, what are those beliefs that are vital for not just the life of the church, not, not necessarily the life of the church, but for the health of the church? So if you don't believe these, you're on, health, on life support, but you, you, know, you can still limp along. I would say, for example, inerrancy is not a level one doctrine. Infallibility is not a level one doctrine. There are many Christians who don't believe in the infallibility of Scripture, but I think that they may be on life support. So I'd call it a level two doctrine. It's important for the health of the church. Question number three, what's essential for the functioning of a local body? And this is where you get into the pragmatic issue. If you say, we don't have any problem with women preachers, uh, and a church that says that says, well, some of us do have a problem, so we're going to have two services. The first service will have a woman preacher, the second service a, a, a male preacher. Um, that causes some problems. Or if you had the first service is charismatic, the second service is non-charismatic. Functionally, you're really acting like two different churches, and it's really, you're not building any unity. So whether those things are of a higher order or not, they are at least on that order. You need to make some decisions. Or the mode of baptism, uh, uh, this kind of a thing. You, you need to come so, to some decisions for the functioning of a local body. And level four is, what are the things I'm simply not going to fight over? They're not important enough to fight over. That may be... In, a good coffee at uh, Starbucks, we can discuss it, but it's not going to be important enough for us to get any arguments over. We don't exercise that kind of discernment uh, in our churches very often, and I've recommended that my students, when they go out to, to uh, pastor churches, that they think of the church's doctrinal statement in those four categories. And uh, it was four. I actually had my numbers right. Uh, but I, I think that, that helps us to discern what's really essential for the life of the church, what's vital for the health of the church, what's important for the local functioning or the functioning of a local body, what are the things that are just not worth fighting over. 
I'd say when it comes to charismatic gifts, we are certainly not dealing with a level one doctrine. And I'd put it kind of somewhere between two and three, that we may have a problem functioning together as uh, a body, uh, but uh, and I'd put it a little bit more important than that because I, I think uh, that the Scriptures are, are relatively clear. For example, when I see what the Reformation was all about with Martin Luther and John Calvin, God's great movement in church history that uh, uh, two years from uh, next week, we will be celebrating the 500th anniversary of Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses to the uh, church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And my family and I are going to be there in Wittenberg celebrating the 500th anniversary. I already gave my school notice three years ago. They know where we're going. Um, that's, that's a huge moment for the church. And yet the Reformers were not charismatic. How could God have done such great things with the Reformation when they were cessationists? Well, at the same time, all of us need to major on the majors, and we need to find unity where we can. And uh, in this issue about these signed gifts, it's really a relatively small area of disagreement. So let me, let me conclude with this and then see, Bob, do we, do we have a little time for Q&A? By way of conclusion, we are all saved by the cross, by the cross. We all have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, and we are all in the same body of Christ. We all will spend all of eternity together, so we might as well start figuring out how to like each other down here. Thank you, folks. Okay, a little time for Q, no A.